0: Good morning. Good to see everyone here uh, on this beautiful, cloudy, autumn morning. Um, if you were like me, the last few days you spent um, uh, some of the time off around Thanksgiving, raking your yard and bagging all the leaves, and uh, that has brought on a an incredible case of the East Texas crud uh, for me. Uh, the last uh, couple of days I have just been incredibly... Um, goopy we'll just leave it at that so I've been doing the the arm elbow bump this morning I'm not shaking hands just doing the elbow bump so uh, if I give you the bump then that means we're good uh, this morning thank you for understanding that how many of you would say you officially have the uh, the East Texas crud this morning let me see that I'm not alone all right more of you are going to get it before uh, before too long Uh, spent some time out raking and bagging, put uh, Christmas lights up on the house. The earliest I've ever done that. Um, It seems like our street is having um, a contest uh, to see who can outdo one another. So uh, we're not into that. Uh, We don't want to try to one-up anybody, but um, we're going to visit Hobby Lobby and buy some more lights uh, next week. (laughs) Reindeer on the roof kind of thing. I don't know. Um, it's fun. I love this time of year. Uh, for the last two days, I haven't been able to taste anything. You know, if you can't smell, you can't taste. And um, so I'm, I'm thankful that Thanksgiving happened before this set in because we had a wonderful feast. I hope and I pray that you had such a wonderful time as we did. A lot of good food, a lot of good fellowship, uh, way too many desserts um, that um, that we have in our house still. But uh, what a blessing it is to be so blessed to live in such a, uh, a country where we're, uh, we're blessed beyond measure. So uh, we give thanks to God for that, and I hope and pray that you had, had a good, uh, good Thanksgiving. I want to talk to you this morning about worship. How should we worship? I want to base this out of Second Samuel chapter 6. Go ahead and put that up on the screen there. There we go. How should we worship? Second Samuel chapter 6, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles over there, I'll have some of the scriptures on the screen, but not all of them. I want us to talk about three different views of God, three different approaches to worship. Uh, the first view really is what I, one I think that is greatly promoted by uh, churches in our country. And the second view is the one that is probably uh, promoted uh, most commonly in our culture, and the third view, well, that one's a little bit harder to define, so thankfully we have an example here uh, in Scripture. I want us to explore all three of these, and we're going to look at an Old Testament story about King David here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've got the Old Testament, that's the, the very beginning of the Bible. The first five books are known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, And then you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you come to Samuel. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel is where we're going to be this morning. 2 Samuel, chapter 6. In the story, we see David's understanding uh, of God, and it undergoes a very dramatic transformation. And as a result, the way he worships, we're going to see just in this one chapter, uh, it goes uh, through all three of these phases over the period of just a few months. Um, and an important question for us this morning is which of these stages best describes your understanding of God and how you worship Him? So let me give you a little bit of background about the story. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, we see David, he finally uh, becomes king. After a long, terrible feud with, with King Saul, David finally becomes king over Israel, fulfilling what God had promised him as God had anointed him uh, to become king. And then David conquers Israel. He comes to Israel, conquers Israel. He makes Israel uh, his capital city. He names it after himself, uh, the city of David. If I conquered a city, that's probably what I would do, name it after myself. Then he has a battle with the Philistines and with God's help and God's intervention, he has a great uh, military battle, a victory there. So then by the time we come to chapter 6, everything has gone right for David. All of chapter 5 is just some really awesome, and I mean awesome things, that have happened to David. Everything is sunshiny, everything is good, everything is positive. So when we get to chapter 6, obviously David decides to have a celebration. And central to the celebration is the act of moving the Ark of the Covenant the capital uh, in Jerusalem. David arranges for an enormous procession of 30,000 men with singing and music. Now, what was the ark? We have a picture here. Uh, This is not a picture of the actual ark. You know that, right? This is just uh, an artist rendering of of what the ark uh, might have have looked like. Um, The ark was a box made of wood. It was covered Uh, with gold it was built during the time of Moses and it was carried everywhere the Israelites went on top of the ark were the figures uh, these angels or or cherubim and the Israelites believed that literally the presence of God came and dwelled between those cherubim they called that the mercy seat that's where the priest, when, he would, when they would make sacrifices, he would go in and he would take that hyssop branch and he would sprinkle the blood on the top of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And that was known as the mercy seat. And this is where they thought literally the presence of God would come down and dwell. And because of that, it was considered the most holy, the most sacred object on the earth to the Israelites. And for that reason, no one, Not even the priest, not the king, an animal, nothing was supposed to touch the ark. I'm losing my uh, my stuff here. Nothing was supposed to touch the ark of the covenant. If they did, what would happen? They would die. They would die. This is a way of showing how holy, how completely uh, distinct and powerful God was. And in order to move the ark without touching it, they had these poles. Those poles would go through the ark and they were supposed, the ark was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. That was the way that they would move it. And they would carry it with them wherever they went. Think about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Some of you have seen that movie and that's uh, what we're talking about here, this Ark of the Covenant. Because of all the great things that God had done for David, all those victories back in chapter 5, David wants to bring the ark. He wants to bring the presence of God with him into Jerusalem. So he orchestrates this this enormous uh, celebration to worship God. And verse 5 says that David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. Have you ever celebrated with all your might about anything? That's what they were doing celebrating, worshiping with all of their might. The scene uh, set forth in the first five verses of chapter 6 represents uh, how much of the church in America, I think, uh, views worship to God. We view God as the one who, who solves our problems. He's the one who wins our battles. So we tend to view worship as, as a celebration, and, and it should be. It very well should be. Music and singing obviously play a very central part in our worship. And as the one who normally is up here uh, leading worship and not preaching to you, um, music and celebration and singing is a huge part of our worship. I love to come to God before his presence with singing. The psalmist tells us to do that, making a joyful noise to God, praising him with our voice, coming with celebration. Um... But that celebratory approach comes from the tendency to focus on all the good things that God has done for us. All of those blessings in our lives. Some of the stuff that we just uh, celebrated back on Thursday. I don't know about you, but if I've had a chapter 5 kind of week, then it's easy to come here on Sunday morning and celebrate, isn't it? When God has been good to me, when I've had victories, when my enemies have been defeated, when God has blessed me then it's easy to come and to want to celebrate and, to, and have that as the main part of, of my worship. If all of life is sunshine and good times, then rejoicing is, is sort of a natural response, isn't it? I think that's how a lot of modern churches present the Christian life. That's kind of the way God is portrayed. If you come to Jesus, your life will be full of chapter 5 kind of victories, and you'll be healthy, You'll be wealthy, no East Texas crud, all of life is good, and God is to be worshipped. God will help you, he will defend you, he will promote you. There's a blog that I've uh, come across in years past, it's called Stuff Christians Like. And uh, some of you may have seen that, it's it's sort of a journey into the church uh, subculture, and some of it's pretty funny. The guy behind it is a guy named John Acuff. And he writes posts about what he observes uh, in the church, having grown up in the church. And he uh, puts some things on his blog that Christians like. Here are a few examples. Number 116, he says, uh, using let, let me pray about it as a synonym for no. <laughs> Somebody asks you to do something. Well, let me pray about it. That's a synonym for uh, not going to happen. Number 235, confessing things around campfires. Isn't there something about a campfire that just makes you want to confess and repent and get right with Jesus, isn't it? I mean, we, we go to camp, we have uh, retreats, and when we build a campfire, it's like uh, all the years I did youth ministry, if I, if I really needed, um, you know, um, a few things to go back and tell the church, you know, boy, we had a great retreat, we had a great time, you know, I needed uh, uh, something to tell the church, you just got to build a campfire. So, man, the kids started repenting and confessing, and everybody got right with Jesus, and we're all good now. 235, confessing around campfires. Um, Number nine, comparing the movie Braveheart to Christianity. Guilty of that. Number 11, Thomas Kincaid paintings. They're just so holy, aren't they? They just are beautiful. Things that Christians like. Number 216, precious moments. just so angelic beautiful number 46 super happy shiny christian radio everything's good everything's fine number 437 he says living better living better and as i began to read he he had another post about that he says this my bookshelf is littered with self-help books About focus and attitude and purpose and drive He says, I think a lot about changing my thoughts And trying to fix the way that I look at the world And how I can improve myself He goes on to write I want God to slightly improve me or enhance my existing life Sometimes I act like the Bible is a self-help book I treat it like a self-help book for a better marriage A better attitude at work and an easier life. I think Acuff really captures what many Christians think about God. To them, God is the almighty improver. God is there to help improve our lives, to make us better, to make us happier, to make us richer, to make our our children grow up better. And if that's how we view God, then it makes sense that our worship would really um, focus heavily on Celebration if that's what God is to us. But let's go back to our story, okay? There's a problem. And it's found in a detail in the story that I don't want you to miss. In verse 3 of Second Samuel chapter 6, we're told that David moved the ark. He moved the ark of the covenant by putting it on a cart, on an ox cart. It's a small detail, but it's a very, very important detail You remember how God had commanded that the ark was to be transported on these poles and only to be carried by the priests? Well, by putting the ark on a cart, David had disobeyed God's commands. He had had ignored the command of God. He didn't show reverence for what God had commanded. He was so fixated on all of God's goodness that he didn't acknowledge God's holiness. He was so fixated on God's goodness that he did not acknowledge God's holiness. Is that possible for us today, you think? He didn't show reverence for God. And in a sense, David's celebration of God was casual. It was was flippant. It was done without care Or consideration for God's power Maybe the way a child might play with fire or electricity You're drawn to it It's something that's powerful But you have no idea what that could do to you Just how powerful it is And this lack of reverence leads to a tragedy And that's the second approach to God That I want us to think about this morning In verse 6 we're told that the ox was pulling the ark And it stumbled And if you remember the story, the cart tilts, the ark nearly falls over, and a man by the name of Uzzah does what? He reaches up to steady the ark, right? And what happens? God strikes him dead that very moment. Right there in front of the ark, Uzzah dies. And when we read a story like this, it strikes us at times as incredibly unfair. Why should God kill a man for an innocent, innocent mistake? It wasn't like Uzzah deliberately touched the ark. It wasn't like they were you know, carrying it and, and Uzzah kind of looked around to <laughs> see if anybody was looking you know, and just wanted to touch it. That's not what happened. All he was trying to do was steady it because the ark was going to fall. He didn't mean to be irreverent or disrespectful. And I could come up with all kinds of explanations you know, for reasons why God killed Uzzah, theological reasons about God's holiness or God wanting to teach his people a lesson. But I don't really think that's the main part of the story. In fact, if you're disturbed by that story, if that story bothers you, if it even angers you that God apparently killed someone for accidentally touching the ark, then you're in good company because that's exactly what happened with David. Look at verse 8. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. David was angry. He thought the whole thing was incredibly unfair. He must have thought, what kind of God would make me king, defeat my enemies, place Jerusalem in my hands, would do all of these good and wonderful things and then kill a friend for an accident? What kind of God would do that? Verses 9 and 10 tell us that David's anger soon turned to fear. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, this is how David's uh, joyful celebration ended. The plans were scrapped because nothing kills a good party like God striking somebody dead, does it? <laughs> I mean, that's just a, a buzzkill right there. End of celebration. Suddenly the Lord uh, didn't seem so good to David. Things weren't happy or sunshiny anymore. And David was now angry at God. He was even afraid of God. And out of anger and fear, he decides that he can't bring this God into Jerusalem, his home. So instead, he takes the ark and leaves it at the Gittites' house. Now, according to some recent surveys, we live in a culture in which about 7 in 10 Americans believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules the world today. 7 out of 10 Americans say that that's what they believe. In other words, despite all the books being published on atheism or New Age or all these other religions, most people in our country profess to be uh, believing Christians, or at least they believe that God is who he said he is. But only about 14% of those people actually worship God on any given Sunday. Only about 14% percent worship on any given, given Sunday. So the bottom line is most people believe in God but most people don't actually worship God. I think David's experience in these verses is very indicative of how many people view God. They believe that God exists but they're just not sure if he's on their side. They're not convinced of his goodness because God sometimes does things or allows things that we just don't understand. We just don't comprehend, and we get angry, and we get afraid. For David, it was Uzzah's death. For some of us today, it might be um, something tragic like the events of 9-11, or Hurricane Katrina, or uh, the genocide that's happening in, in the Sudan. Or what's happening in northeast Nigeria with Boko Haram and, and the massive killings, the beheadings that we, that we see. And you say, well, God's not doing those sorts of things. That's people, that's terrorists that do, that do those sorts of things. But you know what happens when people ask you, maybe those who are not believers in God, what, what is the question that they want to know? What, what is it that they ask Christians? Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow those terrorist acts? Why does God cause hurricanes, flooding, death to happen? Am I right? Isn't that what they want to know from us as Christians? How can you love a God? How can you serve a God that would allow, and you fill in the blank, this to happen? So far from worshiping God, They're angry at God. Maybe they're afraid of God. Why is there destruction in our world? Why? Sometimes we have an answer. I mean, technically, we know why Uzzah died. Why? Because he touched the ark. God said, if you touch it, you'll die. Sometimes we have an answer. But sometimes even an answer doesn't help. Um, It still doesn't seem right to folks even if you have the answer. The answer doesn't take away the anger or the fear. Either they doubt God's goodness and they become angry, or they fear his power and they become afraid. But in either case, they don't have a desire to worship him. Our culture has left God at the Gittites' house. And we see God as seemingly unfair and disturbing, and we worship God accordingly. we see God as either unfair and that disturbs us. So far this morning, we've seen um, two approaches, two approaches, dominant approaches to God and worship. On the one hand, the church in our country, I think, really emphasizes celebration. A A lot of music, a lot of high energy celebration to God. And then we just saw where people don't worship God at all because they're afraid or they're angry at God because of what he's done. Both are obviously lacking. So is there a third way? Is there a third approach uh, to worship to God which leads us um, to worship him properly? One that celebrates his goodness but does not trivialize his holiness. Is that possible? A way of worship that sees God's blessings But also acknowledges that he is a mystery beyond our understanding. In verse 11 of chapter 6, we read that the ark stayed at the Gittites' house for three months. The text goes on to say that the Lord blessed him and his entire household. We don't know exactly what what the blessings were, but we might imagine that these were kind of chapter 5 types of blessings. A lot of good things happening. To Obed-Edom and all of his household because the ark of the Lord was there. God was blessing him probably beyond his wildest dreams. Verse 12 says that the news of these blessings reached Jerusalem. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. In other words, David is reminded of why he wanted God near him in the first place because of all of these blessings that uh, Obed-Edom is receiving. He's reminded of God's goodness. And because he wants the blessing of God for himself and for his city, he goes and he once again takes the ark. And there is this huge processional, once again, of music and of rejoicing. In fact, in verse 15 we are told that David danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets this looks very much like what happened in verse 5 doesn't it this is a joyful extravagant if you will celebration of God's goodness but this time this time something has changed Look at verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. There are two important details I want you to notice here. First, it says the ark was being carried. It wasn't on a cart anymore, okay? It was being carried on poles on the shoulders of the priest, just as God Commanded, Just as God commanded David has learned the danger of, of irreverent casual worship This time he shows God the respect that God deserves Secondly it says that David sacrificed a bull and a calf Every six steps along the procession Every six steps along the procession they made sacrifice In the Old Testament, animal sacrifice was a way of of honoring God out of one's wealth. Herds of animals were the uh, currency of the day, if you will, representing property, representing status. So David was giving to God not just his songs, but he's giving God his life. He's giving God the blessings that God has blessed him with. So what we see here, I, I believe, is worship that has matured. Worship that has matured. David's view of God is bigger. David's view of God has grown over these last three months. There is celebration and sacrifice. There is rejoicing and reverence to God. Worship that praises God's goodness and is also humble before God's holiness. It captures both sides. Yes, God is good and celebration is wonderful, but this kind of worship sees the other side of God as well. God is also mysterious and dangerous, and we dare not approach him casually or flippantly. Annie Dillard writes this about this missing side of worship in one of her books. Listen to what she writes. Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. What does that mean? I think she's articulating what David learned. If the way we worship is a reflection of our view of God, and I I think it is, Then many of us, myself, we fail to see God as dangerous, as holy. You say, Rodney, that's Old Testament. But look at what the writer of Hebrews says. This is in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews calls us to offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For indeed our God is a consuming fire. So what, what should worship look like that acknowledges both God's goodness and His holiness? Honestly, I, I'm not sure. And I don't think this story about David should be taken as a how-to guide for worship. We're not going to start uh, slaughtering animals every few moments in our services. And growing up in the Church of Christ, I know we're sure not going to dance before the Lord Some of you dance at home, though. I can see it on your faces. But we're not going to most likely start dancing here in worship, are we? This story, I think, pushes us to think about our attitude. How we, in our spirits, approach God. Do we come flippantly? Do we casually invoke the most powerful being in all of the world? As if he were, were some divine DJ that uh, is supposed to bring us some sort of entertainment on Sundays? Or do we come with reverence and awe, like the writer of Hebrews says? To use Annie Dillard's language, do we come in straw hats or do we come in crash helmets? Brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to see. Worship is about both celebration and sacrifice. Worship is about both rejoicing and reverence. You see, I I think as a kid growing up, those two things were mutually exclusive in my mind. You could either rejoice, be happy, and excited. Or you could be reverent to God. But those things were mutually exclusive in my mind. Those two things could never be joined together in my mind, the way that I grew up. But at the end of this story, David is still dancing with all of his might. He's still singing and he's still shouting and he's still playing his music. And we should do the same. We should be excited. We should celebrate before the Lord. And all of that flows from seeing God's goodness in our life. When God has blessed you, when God has given to you, and your cup is overflowing, what else can you do but celebrate? To give back to God in celebration something of what he's given to you. It's very natural. It's very natural. We should do the same. But, but we need to consider the other side too. There's a lot about God that we do not understand. When I was a younger man and someone asked me a question, I I always felt like I had to have an answer. I always felt like if someone asked a biblical question, I had to know the answer because if I didn't, I would somehow uh, look like I hadn't read my Bible. I hadn't studied enough. And sometimes you, you wind up making up things. That aren't really in the Bible because you feel like you have to have an answer. I'm going to tell you, folks, there are some things about God I do not understand. I don't get it. I don't understand. And the older I get, I guess the more comfortable I am not knowing, not understanding. We need to admit, especially in the church, that we don't have all the answers. Somebody else out there might have some of the answers that we don't have. We cannot explain everything God allows or everything God does. He is still a great mystery, powerful, dangerous, a consuming fire. This other side should also be seen in our worship through reverence and awe. Let me end with a passage from C.S. Lewis. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I know a lot of you have have read the books. You have seen the movie. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they take the children to meet Aslan. If you're familiar with the story, then you know that Aslan is the great lion. He's the king of Narnia, this kingdom. He represents Jesus in the story. The children are very surprised when they learn that Aslan is a lion, and Lucy Says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without the knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Lucy. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Don't you hear what she's telling you? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our God is good, but he is not safe. And we should worship accordingly. This may be very uncomfortable for some of you. It's uncomfortable for me, I think. But if you are comfortable, and if it's where you can, I would like for us to bow. We sing about it all the time, on bended knee I come. But would you this morning bow on the knee and pray with me? Father, God in heaven, oh God, Father, we are, we are in such awe of your power. Father, we, we celebrate your goodness, and rightfully so, every week. Father, we come before you and we celebrate your goodness and the bounty that you pour into our lives father we're so blessed we have food and clothing and shelter and so many in the world don't have those things but father oh god we bow before you today and we just admit that you are all inspiring you are awful full of awe father we we bow before your throne this morning and realize that you are a consuming fire And, Father, may we never approach you casually or flippantly. But as much as we rejoice, Father, as much as we celebrate, and I pray that we will with all of our hearts, even dancing before you if that's the way the Spirit leads us, but, Father, help us to never forget that you're a dangerous God, awe-inspiring. Father, help us to be silent before you, acknowledging you as creator, giver, and sustainer of life. And Father, as we rise to our feet, I pray that we will will be a changed people, that we will see you as a bigger and a greater God than we've ever seen before. And I pray this in the precious name of the one who makes it all possible, Jesus. Amen. We're going to offer the invitation of Jesus Christ this morning. If your neighbor needs help helping up, you can help them help them up. We offer the invitation of Jesus Christ this morning. If you need to respond, God sent his son He left heaven, he became a man, he lived in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. He was tempted, but every time he said no, he said yes to God's plan. He was crucified, they buried him, and on the third day he was resurrected. And now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is reigning over all the universe. And if you're a child of God, you are reigning with him. That's a topic for another day. If you're not yet a child of God, if you need to respond to the invitation, do that right now while we stand and while we sing.